Welcome to episode 11 of the Stageworthy podcast. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. On Stageworthy, I interview people who make theater, actors, directors, playwrights, and more, and talk to them about everything from why they chose the theater, to their work process, and anything in between. Usually, when today's guest is mentioned, the words fringe god or fringe legend precede his name. T.J. Daw is a playwright, actor, dramaturg, and director, and of course, a legend of fringe festivals across Canada and the world. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, and consider leaving a comment or rating. interesting because um when i'm looking up you know if i look up tj daw there's a phrase or a variation on a phrase that keeps coming up and i've seen it on a number of of different different blogs um fringe god is one of the one of the phrases um fringe legend is another um and is that is that do you find that uh like how do you feel about those those titles i mean obviously you've put in the work to to gain those titles but i wonder how how is that is that a a crown that weighs heavy or do you (laughs) how do you how do you feel about that i find it very flattering it's that kind of thing is really good for advertising really you know it doesn't help me do the work that i need to do but it's really flattering to hear praise from other people and to be known as as any given thing, or at least as this given thing, because it's certainly a positive label. So sure, I'll take it. Uh, but it's it's a danger, you know, to pump yourself up with the praise of others because that doesn't help you create your next thing. If anything, that can get in the way because it might make you think the stakes are too high or it might make you overestimate your own ability or underestimate the amount of work you need to put in because I can do anything. I'm a fringe god. <laughs> Whereas, in fact, I'm, I'm the same working Joe I've ever been. I'm still trying to discover what, uh, how to write. You know, Charles Bukowski, one of my great inspirations, once said, no one's a writer. Everyone's an ex-writer. And you have to prove yourself every time you sit down at the typewriter. And I really stand by that. So every time, it's, it's a struggle to, to make myself do it every time I sit down to write. It's a struggle to stay focused. And it's, I always have to push myself to stay at the edge of my ability and to to, to be there, you know, to not fake it, to not just take shortcuts or think good enough, but to go as far as I can. Do you have, uh, do you have people that you rely on to help push you? Uh, like, cause I know when I'm writing, sometimes I'm not quite sure how it sounds or how it, how it's working until I have read it for other people and sort of like, uh, I know sometimes it's hard to, for me to push myself to a certain point, or are you really good at, at pushing yourself? I'm pretty good at pushing myself, but after a certain point, you definitely need, or I find I need the feedback of others. Because theater is meant to be performed. It's not meant to be read. So even if I do send a script to some trusted friends, which I sometimes do, I get their feedback and I can be very helpful. But you don't really know what you have until you have an audience. So that's something I, it took me a long time to learn because I'm just very individualistic to the point of it being actually a, a, a huge hindrance. But after a certain point, yeah, let's have a test audience. Let's read this off an iPad or off a music stand and just see if it lands, see if the story holds people's attention and see how things want to be rephrased. You know, like because a lot of what I do is writing autobiographical monologues, after a certain point, I just know, okay, start saying this out loud. Go for long walks because I can... I can get it as close to my natural speech rhythms as I can while, while sitting at the, at the computer, but the only way to really make it sound like I'm just talking out the top of my head, if that's what I'm going for, and that usually is what I'm going for, say it out loud. Hmm. Do you, uh, so you read it or you recite it just walking around? Do you find that helpful yeah. to make sure that it's sounding? Because I know that when I sit at a typewriter, I overwrite. Yeah. When I sit yeah. typing on my computer, I write too much. Yeah, I find if I want to write a play with dialogue, I often do it in collaboration with somebody else. So I've got a writing partner, Mike Rinaldi, who now lives in Hamilton. And we've written a number of plays together, and it's always us in a room. 
doing dialogue with each other as we write it so that it, we're hearing it out loud. We're both trained as actors. Our original ambitions for both of us was acting and we kind of stumbled into writing. But that's been a huge help in our process. And then when I'm by myself, yeah, I just go and I talk to myself. I go for long walks, usually on a very busy street with no foot traffic so that nobody has to listen to me talking to myself. <laughs> or uh, there's a bridge and a park not too far from my apartment in Vancouver, so I'll walk the busy street that goes to the bridge and I'll just talk to myself as the cars rush by and just make it sound out loud because, yeah, there are certain nuances in spoken speech that are very hard to capture when you're sitting down at a computer. Mm, yeah. Do you do you remember? So you 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 initially intended, like I, as you said, to be an actor and sort of fell into writing. What was it that sort of made you fall into that? There's a couple of things. One is that I went from, you know, there's probably a familiar pattern to anybody who's been to a theater program or theater school. Is I went from being one of the stars of my high school drama department, and I, I came from a very small high school without much of an arts department, so I was getting lead roles and everything to university theater department where suddenly everybody was that in their high school and I suddenly wasn't special anymore. And a very small number of people are cast in everything and I wasn't one of those people. So I was just left to my own devices and acting is a bizarre art form in that you have to wait for other people to let you work. You know, yeah. a writer can just sit down and write, a painter can paint, you know, pretty much any other form of art, you can just do it. But an actor has to be given permission. Somebody has to choose you to do it. And if somebody's not choosing you to do it, then what do you do? And around that same time that I was making this difficult adjustment to the fact that, oh, I'm not just one of those people blessed by God who's going to get cast by directors automatically because my talent is so bright that they can't resist me, I started discovering the work of people who wrote and performed their own stuff. So there was uh, George Carlin, there was Spalding Gray, there was Daniel McIver. Uh, not so much a performer, but Charles Bukowski wrote autobiographically, and I became enamored with their style of writing and performing and just realizing that that's something some people can do. I didn't really know that that existed, but I was a fan of Monty Python and they wrote and performed their own stuff. And growing up, I was a big fan of the Marx Brothers and still am, but like they didn't write their own screenplays or their own stage plays, but they added their own material to them. So I was, I, you know, in retrospect, I can see, I always had that inclination for people who wrote their own stuff, who created their own material. So those, those two things, the fact that nobody was casting me and I had nowhere for my energies to go and the fact that I liked people that created their own stuff their own way kind of meld, melded together just at the, right, at the right time and encouraged me to start doing that. So I'd always been an active journaler, journaler so I was just, I'd just write down my thoughts and initially that was with a pen and then eventually with a typewriter and then eventually I started to think what if I turn this into a one-man show? I didn't know how to do it, I had no training as a writer. Uh, playwriting seemed like mysterious priestcraft. It was wizardry. Like there were all these secrets that I just had no access to. I didn't take a course. I didn't have a mentor. And in retrospect, I'm kind of glad I didn't because I, I made my discoveries on my own, in my own way, without applying any theories to them. And I've been doing that ever since. So you, your first play was uh, based on journal entries? More or less, like what I would do was I, it was the mid-90s and I was very technophobic at the time, so I wrote on a typewriter, which had been somewhat romanticized by Charles Bukowski, and I would just purge my thoughts onto my typewriter day after day. And I would write, yeah, just my thoughts, what had happened that day or what I was reading or what I was listening to or who I was in love with or whatever it was, and then slowly thinking, like, could I turn some of this into a one-man show? And I didn't adapt anything I'd already written. I just continued to hone my thoughts and just take a certain nugget and expand it into a monologue. And I just mashed a bunch of these monologues together in something that didn't really have much of a structure or a story. So I can look back on that first play that I did now. It was like about 45 minutes long and think it was pretty flawed. But it was a good first step, and I learned from that. And then I continued that process with the next show and then the next one. What, what, what was it that made you think about doing a, a one-man show? Part of it was just that I was so enamored with the one-man shows I had seen. Like, when I was 18, uh, the movie theater in Vancouver, The Ridge, which was an art house theater, had a double bill of Spalding Gray monologues. And in their guide, the heading was Hooray for Captain Spalding, and that was a Marx Brothers reference, so that jumped out at me. And reading the description of who this guy was, I'd never heard of him and what he did, it didn't 100% make sense with, with me, but I was intrigued. And I went and saw it. And then, so there I am at this movie theater, 18 years old. I've enrolled in university. I'm going to be leaving in a month. And I'm just starting to discover the world outside the limited world of my teenage years. You know, I'm discovering independent film. I'm discovering 
independent music. I'm discovering foreign films. I'm discovering the notion of not being homophobic. You know, my world's expanding in these interesting ways. And then I'm at this art house theater in the cool part of Vancouver, and there's this movie called Swimming to Cambodia where this guy just sits at a desk and talks and tells an elaborate story about something that happened to him. And my life was changed. Like, I didn't know that you could do that. And he was fascinating, and he spoke rapidly, and he did the sound effects, and he did the character voices, and he looked different directions to portray different people when there was dialogue. And I just loved it. And then there was another one, Monster in a Box, and he did more of the same, and it was also amazing. And it just struck me, oh, that's something you can do. And around that time, I was buying used records, and I was buying George Carlin's stand-up albums, and he never raps with the crowd. I really think his stand-up albums, they work as concerts, like it's a performance and there's a rhythm to the whole thing. And then when I was looking for audition pieces as a theater student, I came upon some of the monologues of Daniel McIver, and his stuff just jumped off the page in the way that the plays that I had to read for my theater classes didn't. It was a difficult thing for me to own up to is that I didn't like reading Shakespeare or Chekhov or Shaw or Brecht or any of the great playwrights. It, it just, it, it wasn't my dream to play Hamlet. It was difficult to admit that because for a while it seemed like admitting that I don't want to be an actor. But I loved reading McIver and I loved reading Spalding Gray and I loved reading Charles Bukowski. And I loved listening to George Carlin. He didn't have any books at the time. And that just got me thinking, maybe that's what I'd like to do. I don't know how to do that. I don't know where I'd do that. I don't know if there's a future doing that, but that excites me far more than playing the lead in a Chekhov play, which nobody wanted me to do anyway. Was that first, your first uh, McIver play, was that Wild Abandoned by any chance? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. I mean, what I've since discovered is that some of the monologues from Wild Abandoned are incredibly overdone in terms of people using them for audition pieces. But I didn't know that when I first read them in this anthology of monologues from Canadian plays for men. I just knew that this is exciting and it's funny and it means something and I know how to do this. And this yeah. guy's out there and he's Canadian. And yeah. there's clearly at least some audience for this. Did, uh, was, it, was it the idea of performing solo, did you find that frightening at first as an idea? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, again, it was, it was a new thing to me. On the other hand, though, again, something I had a hard time owning up to was that I didn't really like being in plays with other people. I was in a few plays with other people, and I just found the rest of the cast annoying. Uh, I hated having to do a group vocal warm-up. I hated actor rituals, the whole... Theater student culture really bothered me. This, you know, is something I've never encountered in the professional world, but some of my classmates would stay in character off stage, yeah. you know, and just do annoying things like that or always be performing, you know, and I think that's really, you know, a young person trying to prove to, the, to themselves and to the world that they are an actor when, in yeah. fact, they're just as insecure as anybody else. Whereas working on my own, I didn't have to deal with that. <laughs> there was just yeah. me. So it was intimidating, but it was also... It was appealing in the fact that I didn't have to coordinate schedules with anybody else. I didn't have to, in my very vulnerable state, bring my first writings to the table, have to have them critiqued by somebody else or have somebody else say, I don't get it or this isn't good enough. I could just work on it on my own. And there was an appeal to that for me. And what I've since realized is that it is very difficult to dovetail schedules with other people. It's hard to get people on the same page. It's hard to get bigger plans of working with other people. So what I started doing once I was writing shows was touring the fringe. Well, it's hard to find a good number of people who want to tour consistently and live on the starvation wages that that entails. Mm -hmm. And what I've also discovered is that my aversion to being in groups is a survival strategy that I adopted early in life that I don't need to adhere to. So now I am starting to collaborate more and work with other people more. And I absolutely enjoy it because I'm bringing a lot of self-work and self-understanding to the table that I just didn't have when I was in my early 20s. Do you, do you, you mentioned like tour, touring the fringe and, and, and doing that. Um, what was your first fringe? Well, it was a really wonderful experience in that when I was a theater student, I was infrequently cast, as I mentioned. One of the first things I was cast in was, of all things, a touring fringe show of a Daniel McIver play. Mm. So there was a grad student who'd done a fringe tour the year before. And he had cast me in my first thing of all, which was a play from the Edmonton Fringe. It was called Cut. And it was a high concept play that consists of characters cut from famous plays. 
So a great play to do at a theater department. So there's all kinds of theater in-jokes in it. I played a butler who'd been cut from every Oscar Wilde play. And my running gag was I was always offering people cucumber sandwiches. And it went really well for the three performances that it ran. And that same director was going to tour the Fringe with Never Swim Alone by Daniel McIver. Mm. And I auditioned and I got cast. And we toured in the summer of 1994. We started, we previewed in Kitchener. We opened at the Toronto Fringe and played five fringes and ended in Victoria. And it was an incredible experience. So it wasn't my show. It was somebody else's script. It was somebody directing me. But it was the kind of theater that I loved. And I was surrounded by this culture of self-creators. Most mm. people on the tour were doing their own work. And I was a part of it. I was accepted as a peer. And that blew my mind. As well as the fact that there's audiences interested in seeing this stuff. And I was seeing some of the best theater I'd ever seen in my life. And then I came back to the theater department and began my third year in university. And again, went back to not being cast. And nobody knowing that I'd done this fringe tour. And the kind of theater that I'd just done not being taught in my theater history classes or not being discussed as an option of what we might do once we graduate. And, aspire to professional careers. But I had this in my mind of like, I know that's out there. So that when I started writing my own one-man shows, that just seemed like a natural place to do them. I can, I can be a part of this festival without any kind of jurying process. And I can go out there and at least conceivably break even or even make money doing it. So that ended up being, in a lot of ways, I think of it as my own grad school. I funded my post-secondary education by just throwing myself out there and doing it again and again and again, and learning by doing. I have a real tendency to stand on the sidelines and theorize, like I knew that about myself, so I knew it was a good thing for me to get in the ring, to throw myself into the deep end and just learn how, how to swim. So you were, you were putting yourself in a position that you weren't particularly comfortable with in doing a, a not just a fringe show, but doing like a solo show, but having to promote it in the very personal way that a fringe performer has to promote. Yeah, that was more difficult than doing the show having to do street promotion, having to, having to come up to strangers on lineups and saying, can I tell you about my show? This is what it's about. And try and sell them on this show that had an abstract title and an abstract concept and I had no touring history. And it was hugely intimidating. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm quite often averse to socializing, period, much less approaching strangers and saying, please love me and please give me money. Like, that was horribly difficult. It's terrible. It's terrible. As, as somebody who's, who's done that um, and who is not comfortable in either talking about myself or um, really promoting myself very well, like just talking to strangers to tell them why they should come and see my show, just absolutely terrifying. Yeah, but I ended up finding a trick, which was to make a performance out of it. And I would turn it on and I would mm -hmm. make a patter out of different review quotes that I've been getting, you know, as the tour progressed and I was accumulating more reviews. And I'd say something different to every single person. I'd make eye contact. And then if they overheard me talking to the next person in line, they'd overhear me saying different things. They might keep listening. And I kind of realized that that sales pitch is a sample of the show. Even if I'm not doing a sample of the show, it's that person saying, is this person interesting enough to gamble $10 in an hour of my time on? I stopped doing that like as soon as I could afford to because it was, still took a lot out of me and I still hated doing it. But after a while, I realized, yeah, if I, if I just approach it as a performance, that trick ended up working. And I, it totally jump-started the whole process. And suddenly, I was playing to big audiences and actually making good money. It's funny you mentioned when you were in theater school, like the whole idea of like the, the fringe ethos and the fringe self-creator not being something that was really discussed. Because I remember myself when I was in theater school in the early 90s, the same kind of it's not something like Fringe existed. We knew it existed. It was small, but we knew it, it was there. But it was never an option. Nobody ever discussed what creating your own show was like. Yeah, there was certainly no course in my department on theater creation. And I've come to understand that in a number of theater programs, now there is. And Fringe festivals are a lot more crowded in, their, in the applications now than they were when I first started touring. Oh, yeah. They're okay. very difficult to get into now. And I think that's a big part of why. Is just there's more people out there like me or like Daniel McIver or Ronnie Burkett or Sandra Seamus or Mump and Smoot or Karen Hines or a lot of people out there who forged careers on original creation theater and more young people and more theater students are seeing this kind of thing and it's less stigmatized and more and more people are thinking I wouldn't mind doing that. A lot of people are still playing the game as, as per normal and auditioning but more and more of them are creating their own thing either as solos or in ensembles 
and creating a lot of very interesting work. And I think that's very exciting. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of people, just as I'm doing this podcast, a lot of people who are who are talking about the fact that they're doing both and they're doing um creating they're working on their own show they're creating they're self-creating they're doing this that and the other thing in addition to the stuff that you know the, the usual method of, of of pursuing an acting career that that they t- that you know we expect in a theater school yeah these are these are legitimate options and you're right a person doesn't have to only do one or the other you can do both or you can focus on one if one appeals to you more than the other absolutely do you so Again, just to to go back a little bit, we've talked a little bit about uh, you making a tra- transition from, you know, being an actor who wasn't getting cast in things to to writing your own stuff. But I'm curious about your first uh, exposure to theater. Do you know what it was that made you want to pursue a career in theater? Well, I always saw theater as a stepping stone towards the movies. My first love was the movies. I was taken to see Star Wars when I was four years old in the movie theater. And when those, when those yellow words blasted off into those stars and the fanfare played, my life was changed forever. And it wasn't too long after that that I saw Empire Strikes Back and then Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. And I wanted to be a part of that. You know, like those movies were larger than life experiences and I wanted to have adventures that big. So when I was a little kid, I always said I wanted to go to L.A. I wanted to study at UCLA and learn how to be an actor there. And that's, that was the career trajectory that I imagined at that point. My early theater-going experiences were the same as most kids do, which is like a touring children's theater company comes to your school, or your school is brought to see a Eugene O'Neill play or a Shakespeare play, and you have to write essays about it saying why it's brilliant when you didn't even really understand it or want to see it in the first place. So most of my early theater-going experiences weren't great. The first time I saw something on stage that blew my mind was improv. You know, I'd vaguely heard of improv, and then for the school play in grade 11 where I had the lead, I did a tremendous ad lib on the second night to cover up for some of the other actors corpsing when their father was in the front line guffawing at everything they did. And I got a big round of applause and the directors loved it and hugged me and then the cast went out to see Vancouver Theatre Sports that night and it was a very good cast that night. And I was just smitten. I was like, this, oh, it can be this funny. It can be this alive, this interactive. And improv ended up not taking when I started taking courses from them. Like I was just too shy. I was, uh, you know, ill at ease in the group dynamic yet again, there was that at play. But I fell in love with just that feeling of what that was like to be there and doing that. So when I went to theater school, you know, my, my crass ambition at the time was, you know, just do theater as the stepping stone to being in the movies. But I'd had that experience with theater sports. And by then, I'd seen those movies of Spalding Gray. And I was starting to be turned on to alternative theater, understanding that that exists too. It's a kind of theater that nobody has to write an essay on the kind of theater I wasn't taught about even in, even in university, much less in high school, and that completely appealed to my sensibilities as they were evolving at the time. Um, so, and you started to, to, to think of theater as, as something that you could do. Um, do I know I've, uh, for me, I sort of, I can vaguely remember the first time that I saw a play. And I can remember um, that it, it was something that I was doing as a child. And then at some point along the way, I realized that it could be, it was a thing that you could do. Like in the same way that some people are doctors and some people are lawyers. It was a thing that you could, like you could say, when somebody says, what do you do for a living? You could say, I'm an actor or, or something like that. Did, do you, at what point did you realize that it was a thing? Pretty early on from the movies, you know, just that sense of, and maybe it was because there was behind the scenes features about the making of Star Wars and things like that. Uh, But I always had the sense of like, yeah, those people have the best job in the world. That's what I want to do. I want to be a part of that. Now, like any kid, of course, I didn't know what, what being in a movie actually entailed. And I still don't. I've never been in a movie (laughs) other than as an extra. But what I understand, though, is it's a lot of waiting around. And you have little to no creative control when you're an actor, unless you're a big, big star. But what I've since understood, come to understand, is what appealed to me at the time, not so much was standing in front of a camera and emoting, but having an adventure of having that hero's journey. And in a lot of ways, being a writer-performer has afforded me that. 
because you do this inner journey every time you create something. You have to go into the unknown and find and go past all the monsters and all the distractions and get the golden fleece or the holy grail and bring it back out into the world. And then as a touring artist, there's an external version of that too. It's like going far away from home to someplace nobody knows me and proving myself and battling through my doubt and my fear and whatever external obstacles present themselves. And then coming back changed, transformed, you know, gone through the, the ringer, through the foundry. Uh, through the, and come out the other side and just be, being this new person, this transformed person on the other side of that adventure. So in some ways, what I realize now is, yeah, I didn't want to play Luke Skywalker. I wanted to be Luke Skywalker. And in my own bizarre way, I, I made it happen. In terms of your writing process, um, I mean, you were talking about how initially you were writing from journals that you were keeping do you when you're writing a new piece do you sit down and think i'm going to write a new piece and this is the topic or do you generally look at things that you've been writing in your journals and sort of figure out how you can put that together well i don't journal so much anymore i think social media has kind of leaked the steam out of a lot of people's journal writing because facebook is pretty much short form blogging what am I doing today? What am I thinking about? What's on my mind? What's my comment on this thing that's happening in the world at large or this thing inside? But mostly what happens is after a while I notice I seem to be thinking about this certain thing a lot. And it might be this idea from out in the world or it might be this certain part of my life. And I just find myself like mulling that over a lot and I start to think, I wonder if that's my next show. And so then I just sit with that and think, does this keep coming back? And if it does, then I eventually set out a time in terms of like, all right, January. I'm going to sit down and write the script for that in January. And I'll just take whatever I've got and go for it. And then I'll pound out a first draft. And it might take the entire month or it might be less than that or it might be more. But I just kind of, I, I noticed that something seems to be happening. It's almost like harvesting a field of grass or something like that. It's like, ah, oh, the grass is at a certain height. It wants to be mowed. Okay, let's... Let's, let's mow it and let's see what this grass tastes like. What is the show about? And I do a lot of discovering while I'm sitting there. So <clears throat> you do a lot of the discovering while you're, while you're writing. Um, and do you, do you, so you write your, you pound out your first draft and then you, uh, do you take time before you read it out loud once you're done that first draft or do you just plow through and just keep going and revising the whole way through it's different for every project but generally yeah i'll take some time away from it because then i can actually look at what it is with some kind of clarity and say oh okay this part doesn't actually work or this part is redundant or this part isn't as interesting or funny as i thought it was or this better than i thought it was like if i can take like a month away then i can come back to it and look at it with some kind of freshness and that really helps mm. you find a month is about the length of time that it, it that allows you to have that that kind of clarity when you're looking over it. Yeah, yeah, I like to I like to take a month if I can. Like I don't keep strict track of of what I do, but like off the top of my head, I'd say yeah, probably about that. Mm. Yeah, I think I think yeah, it's about the same. When I'm writing, it's about the same amount of time. I think there's a certain point of time when I can stand to look at what I've written. You know, after before being too judgmental or 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 thinking it's too brilliant. So it's sort of like one of, those, one of those two things. And something that a lot of my peers do is they'll write it and memorize it at the last minute. And that's something I have never once done. I like to start my process long before the, the due date for that exact reason, because I know things need time to gestate. And I like to revise. And I know that a lot of my revising happens while I'm rehearsing. So I like to have ample time to do that. Let's let this thing flesh out. That seems that seems more frightening to me than anything else, like revising up until the last minute. Well, I'm always revising even after I've opened, but at least it's not done with that kind of frantic sense of like, am I even going to remember it? Much less, yeah. is it good or are there gaps in it that, I have to, that I'm going to have to mend once there's paying audiences in, in the audience, paying, paying you know, customers in the audience as well as critics who are going to be slapping their opinion out on the web for everybody to read. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you get to to do fringe festivals much anymore? I mean you were saying about how 
it's so hard to get into the into the fringe festivals. I know uh, Toronto Fringe really hard to get into, and I think that's the same in most of the fringe festivals yeah. across Canada. Um, do you get to fringe much anymore? Not nowhere near as much as I used to, and there's that's kind of a good thing because I don't want to do nothing but the fringe forever, and I'm in a relationship now. For a lot of my years mm-hmm. of touring, I wasn't, or I'd be in short-term or long-distance relationships, and I had no apartment to come back to. Now I do. So I don't want to be on the road with fringes forever. I'm starting to work outside the fringe. So not getting into fringes the way I used to is a good kick in the ass to pursue contacts that I have outside the world of the fringe. And then I also have contacts within certain fringe festivals, like in the communities, so that I can do bring-your-own-venues. So this year I'm going to be doing that in Orlando, in Winnipeg, and in Vancouver. But if I were solely relying on the lotteries, I wouldn't be doing any festivals this year. Yeah. Um, when you're not fringing, is there, do you have avenues that, I mean, you're saying you've, you've have avenue, you know, you, you, you look for ways to perform. Um, did fringe open doors to performing in non fringe, uh, locations and non fringe, uh, uh, spaces? Yeah. And I'd say that performing, writing and performing at the fringe has, in one way or another, opened every door to everything I've done since then. Because you never know who's in the audience. So, and, and it's also where I hone my craft. So anything I've done outside the fringe has been something that has at least began there. Or any artistic relationship I have is from somebody who probably saw me at a fringe festival and thought, I'd like to work with that person, or I'd like to hire that person, or I've heard that you're out there, and would you like to come to my theater? So yeah, the fringe has been kind of the minor leagues of of, of theater for me and I've gotten you know interest from scouts from the major leagues all over the place and I think that's an important thing too because there are arguments uh, for not doing the fringe for exactly that reason you know you can get stigmatized you can get pigeonholed it's kind of it's the trailer park of theater in some ways but the great thing that it's done is it's kept me working and I've done a lot of collaborating that's come out of the fringe and I've had a lot of opportunities come just because I've built up this body of work and now anything that I do now, anything that I create is standing on the shoulders of all my years of writing and performing and directing and dramaturging fringe shows. Uh, speaking of directing, um, looking at the list of, of shows that you've directed, um, I'm noticing, so you've got uh, One Man Star Wars, One Man Lord of the Rings. Um, you've got so many shows. Did, did people, the people that, that you directed for I assume they approached you because of your previous fringe work. Uh, uh, not initially, actually. Uh, the Charlie Ross, who does One Man Star Wars, he and I were classmates in university. So we were theater students together. And we just liked hanging out. And we had a very copacetic sense of humor. And we had a mutual love to the point of obsession about the Star Wars trilogy. And Charlie expresses himself through sound effects and voices and pantomime, just brilliantly. I mean, that's just if you're, that's how he has even a regular conversation. So when it came time to create that show, it was just a matter of honing the Charliness and finding a way to put that into a repeatable format. So a lot of my collaborations are that. It's like some, some friend or associate or colleague that I, I love and respect and finding some way to take what I love and respect about them and put it into a finite form, you know, a repeatable form. And then since then, and especially in just the last handful of years, more and more people have been approaching me, more to dramaturg, sometimes to direct. But I've kind of become known, not even so much as the fringe god, but as the one-man show guy. Mm. So that if you, want, if you have a story you want to tell, or you have an idea, or if you've been performing in a certain way, but you've always wanted to do a solo show, maybe this is the guy that can help you. And in fact, I now teach a course on solo shows at a college in Vancouver. Oh, nice. When you're dramaturging a, a solo show, are there specific things that you're looking for? Well, I think it really comes down to kind of a, just a translation of the Charlie idea, which is who is this person? What is the story or idea they want to get across the world? And what is the essence of who they are? And how can I, how can I find a way to help them get that into their stage show in some way? So maybe they're a person who's really great at playing characters. Maybe they have a really great visual sense. Maybe they're really good at just as conversational storytelling. And then there's, okay, so what's the story or what's the idea? And how does that story or idea want to be expressed? 
Is that a story or idea that's well expressed by playing a menagerie of characters or by just sitting down at a desk and talking? What works best for them? There's no one right way to do it, but there's just a certain energy that a person has that it's like, okay, let's find that and let's hone that, let's improve that and let's work on that. And then a lot of what I do with people is actually just sitting with them and saying, that's good, do more of that. Hmm. <laughs> a lot of people need very little, but that very little is the thing that they need to do it in the first place. People have huge procrastination mechanisms and self-sabotaging mechanisms. So a lot of my work with people is going for walks with them and getting them to tell me their story and me saying, that's great, you should write that. And then let's sit down. Okay, now write the such and such monologue. I'll give you 45 minutes and I'll be here. And then read me what you got at any point. But I'll stop you at 45. I got my eye on the clock. Turn off the Wi-Fi on your laptop. And just write it for 45 minutes. And then they do. And they're brilliant. And I'm not sitting over their shoulder and I'm not telling them what to write. Uh, I'll just give them feedback when it's time to give them feedback. But they're doing 99% of the work. The 1% that I do is just to be there and say, yep, I'm here when you need me. And then quite often people's natural brilliance just emerges. Is it, do you think it's just that people sometimes need permission to be brilliant? Yeah. Yeah, I think people have a lot of doubt and they contend with you know, their own self-sabotaging habits. And there's anything, you know, like we have a tremendous capacity to do anything other than the creative work that is going to make our soul feel alive. It's a bizarre aspect of being a human being, but I go through it and I think pretty much everybody goes through it. So to have one other person there to say, here's the validation you need. I absolutely second that that thing you've been thinking about is worth writing about. I would like to hear it. Do it. And then also to be there with somebody else. Like if somebody's just in their own apartment and they got an afternoon and they say, well, I'm going to write this afternoon. And then they end up just screwing around on social media. Whose time are they wasting? Their own. And they don't seem to mind doing that because, well, it's just me. And I don't really right. respect myself that much. But if they're meeting with one other person, then there's that sense of like, well, I don't want to waste their time. So I'm not just going to sit here and screw around on Facebook while he's sitting there. So sure, yeah, I'll write for 45 minutes. How bad could it be? And then they write for 45 minutes and they write something amazing. They could have done that on their own. It's just they tend not to. When you're telling somebody, and this is one of those silly questions that just sort of occurs to me. When you're telling somebody to, to write for 45 minutes, uh, I'm going to be here. Uh, are you watching them write? Are you... Generally not. Uh, sometimes I'm writing something on my own. Sometimes I'm reading. But I was wondering about that because I always find that if there's another person writing near me, like if we're writing in the same room or something, I find that their that their writing makes me write. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Some friends of mine in a blog group used to do what I called "shut the fuck up and write night." <laughs> so we'd, that's kind of brilliant yeah we bring our computers and you can chat as much as you want until 7 o'clock then 7 o'clock comes around and I say alright everybody shut the fuck up and write and if people start chatting part way through uh, uh, wait till 9 these 2 hours we're shutting the fuck up and we're writing hmm. and then we do and it just creates this kind of shared space it's a creative yoga as one guy used to call it I like that creative yoga yeah there's, just, there's this energy that comes up of like this is what we're here to do now Hmm. Hmm. I think I would be remiss not to not to ask you uh, about toothpaste and cigars. Sure. Yeah. Um, because that's a. I mean, that's a show. That's a play. A Canadian play that got turned into a Hollywood movie. Yeah. Well, a Canadian movie. A, a Hollywood. I mean, it has like Hollywood. I mean, it's shot in Toronto. It has Hollywood people in it. Yeah, from, yeah. You know, so it's like one of those. It's like it's a unicorn. Yeah, totally. It's 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 a Canadian unicorn because it's a Canadian play that got turned into a movie with with like with names, recognizable actors. Yeah. yeah, not just was that Canadian a trick? Actors. Was that a trick? Well, yeah. Well, no, was that a trick? Oh, a trick. Like, was that what was that like for to to see that process of having a play? and get, watching that happen. No, it was pretty commonplace. That, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was incredible. Well, it took 10 years. That's another part of the thing, is that the play mm. was, we started, Mike, Mike Rinaldi and I started writing that in 2001. 
We finished the script in 2003. It toured the fringe in 2003 with Mike in the male role. It was a two-hander. And then a friend in Vancouver at the end of that tour offered to shop it around to some film contacts. So a guy bought the option in 2004. And then it debuted at the Toronto Film Festival in 2013 and got its commercial release in 2014. So a very protracted timeline, full of gaps, full of waiting, full of vague news about this studio is interested or this star is, is attached or we've got a date. Oh, wait a minute, it got canceled. Or it might be back in play. No, it's dead. No, it's alive. And like I'm way in the distance with no control over any of it. Like mm. I'm, news is filtering its way to me. It's, I have no input in casting and writing the drafts and funding and where they're going to film, anything like that. So yeah, it was, it was like this, this thing that I'd created. It's, I mean, creating theater is like having a child. And mm -hmm. after a certain point, the child grows up and runs off and has their own life. And Toothpaste and Cigars just had the most bizarre and brilliant life. And it's like I'd get these missives from this child. And it's like, wow, you sound like you're doing really well. Go, go, kid, go. And yeah, it went the distance. It was a huge trip. It was amazing. I wouldn't trade it for anything. No, I, I, I guess not. I mean, how many people get to have that experience? Not only that, it became a movie that I genuinely liked. And like the, the, the anguished cry of any playwright when they see even another production of their own work is, what have you done? What have you done yeah. to my script? And then, of course, how many, how many authors are there or playwrights who've had their work turned into movies that they just loathed? And they have to bite their yeah. tongue at least until the movie's finished. And then they can shit-talk it to the world. But I genuinely liked the movie that Toothpaste and Cigars became. I was there on set. You know, I even have a small cameo in the movie. I'm in, a, in the background in a bar scene. And the director, Mike Douse, was really nice. And both leads introduced themselves to me and Mike on set. And they were all really nice. And the movie itself ended up being genuinely good. And how often does that happen? And very, very rarely. Yeah, like especially in Canadian film, you know, like underfunded, underattended Canadian film for yeah. a movie to come out and to be able to stand behind it and be like, my God, I would like this even if I, even if I wasn't involved. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, and, and you said that it took like, like 10 years to have that happen. Yeah. Um, have there, like, is, did you ever sit back and, and, and wonder what is it about this play that caught somebody's attention? Or did, did, when somebody said we think that could work as a movie, did you say, yeah, I can see that? Oh yeah. I mean, right from the start, I could see the cinematic potential of it because for one thing, it's dialogue. You know, it was a two person play and it was all dialogue. There were no model, there was no narration to the audience. So that kind of thing just seems to translate better in terms of like you can immediately picture the interaction between the characters. And, um, you know, a lot of other stuff that I've written is very personal and autobiographical in as much as like I'm describing my inner life. So not necessarily easy to translate or it's about, it's about my inner life. So it's not about extraordinary things happening to me in the world, but it's about my thoughts and feelings. So again, it's like, would that translate to film? Maybe, but not in a way that's as easy to visualize. But there's also a big luck factor. You know, like there were many, many instances of luck involved in, the, in that actually becoming a movie. And that's the nature of luck is you can't depend on it. It's just sometimes it's there. And that happened in this case. Have you considered, I mean, I think, I think you know, to have the, that, that, fringe legend fringe god um title that that thing that people that people call you um do you see that as as luck or did you i mean obviously you put so much work into into fringe and you did it for so for so long that it really i think that when people are calling you those things are they calling you that do you think both be because of uh, the performance, like how ubiquitous you you became, or you've become, or or is it more about the 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 writing, or is it ever, the whole thing? Do you think? I think it's a big combination of things because yeah, I've been very prolific, and I do a style of theater that really thrives in the fringe. I mean, minimalist solo shows aren't often produced outside the fringe because 
people have a sense that they want to get their money's worth, so that involves, among other things, a set or a multi-actor cast. And then there's the fact that I've worked with a lot of different people, and then there's the fact that my shows have been of a consistently high quality. And then there's also the fact that my shows have never had a gimmick. And I'm not shit-talking anybody whose shows do have a gimmick. You know, that can be a great thing. I mean, One Man Star Wars, that's a gimmick, and I co-created that. It's just that when you have a gimmick, people tend to remember the gimmick and not you. Hmm. And I took the slower and harder route without that being my plan. It's just that's what ended up happening of the brand being me rather than this is a show about the history of Canada or this is a show about this particular hot topic. So it was just longer to establish myself, but then eventually it happened. So it was more about the fact that I was there or the, you know, the, the draw was, was about what I was doing rather than about the subject. And that happens on Fringes a lot too. So there's been a lot of hard work that's built up in this to get me praising this. A lot of relentless touring. I've toured more than practically anybody else. Done more than 100 fringe festivals. And that's the other thing is a lot of people don't have an endless appetite for touring. They miss their home. They miss their cat. They want to live in one place. Whereas there's a part of me that actually really likes being on the road. Doesn't want to be on the road like 12 months a year. But yeah, I love going out and having an adventure and playing that game and being a part of it. Generally, when you were when you're when you're doing the when you were doing the fringe tour, would you start in May or June and go straight through until September, or would you try to go for that that long? Huh? Yeah, I, I, for most of my years, I never had a break. It was five, six months without even a day off. I would start as early as I could. So for some years, that was Montreal, and then after a while, it was Orlando, and then the last fringe would be. Vancouver, and then there'd be some pickup gigs after that that would often take me to the end of September or even into early October. So yeah, it was a solid, unbroken five to six months. So did you, did you, did you say unbroken without taking time off? Are you talking about like not taking a day off during the fringe or That's right. like, were you solidly out there every day promoting? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily be promoting, but when you're around a fringe festival, you are on. Like you, you just, you're not taking a day off. So even if you're not handing out flyers or lineups, you're interacting with people all day. And in my case, generally people are saying really nice things, but still that takes a lot of energy. You're out there and you're playing the game and you're seeing other shows. You know, I would see as many fringe shows as I could, you know, you get comped into everything and I learn from everything I see. So I'm never really turning off. And the things I like to do to relax are things that also feed my artistic self. So reading a book or going to a movie or reading a graphic novel or something like that. All of that is still work. You know, I, I write off yeah, those yeah, things yeah. on my taxes and legitimately so because I'm always thinking about like dialogue and acting and directing and how the story comes across. So in a lot of ways, yeah, I have a very hard time turning it off. What, as, I mean, I, I did, uh, I guess maybe four, four years ago, I did a, a, a shorter fringe tour I found the the promotion exhausting as an as an introvert uh, oh, yeah. going up to people uh, at the end of every day I was just done and you know some fringes more than others Edmonton and Winnipeg exhausted me more than any other uh, just because of the number of people um, I get the sense that that you sort of at least starting out had that sort of struggle as well. Did you have any trick? I mean, you've, you've got your patter, but how did you combat the exhaustion that comes from being on and, and talking to people all day? Well, I really burned out a lot. You know, like if I look back to how I lived 10 years ago, I was self-medicating with pot cookies, which is not the hardest drug you can take, but it's still, I look at it now as self-medication. And I would sequester myself at the end of the tour. I'd go off to my family's cabin on an island and not speak to anybody. And, you know, I really burned out. And then the, the force of that burnout would lead to me eventually getting into personal work. And I ended up writing shows about that. So that got me into the Enneagram, the personality type system that I study and now teach. That got me doing an ayahuasca retreat with Gabor Mate and then various other retreats that some of which involve psychotropic substances, all of which is all about examining like what's going on inside and how do I get in my way and how do I sabotage myself and realizing that one of those ways is A, to not ask for help, B, to believe that I don't belong when I actually do, and C, to prioritize my own needs last. 
So those are things that I'm hyper aware of now when I'm on the road and I actually take care of myself a lot better than I used to. And I also don't tour quite as relentlessly as I used to. But I'm very aware of like, I have a habit of separating myself from others. So what if I were to not do that and realizing that when I, when I go the other way, I actually have a better time and it's healthier for me mentally and emotionally. What if I were to take time off when I need it? Is that a sin? No, actually it's not. So, okay, I'm allowed to do that. Well, and there goes the siren. What if I were to ask for help? That's not against the law. I always kind of operated with the belief that it was. So all of these things just help me be more sane and grounded. And I'm happier on tour and I'm more present. And I actually get a lot of feedback from people who've known me for a lot of years saying, you're different now. And they mean that in a good way. Or at least I hope they do. <laughs> Since you're not, not touring quite as much, how... What is it that you are, how do you uh, fill your days now in addition to, you said you're teaching and you're writing, but how do you, how do you fill your time? Well, there's a lot of admin that's involved in being an independent artist. So there's that. Uh, there's teaching solo shows. There's dramaturging people's one-man shows. There's my own writing projects. So I've always got a number of things that I'm working on on the go. There's blogs. There's new plays, there's screenplays and teleplays, you know, that aren't necessarily being produced, but I'm writing them and hoping to send them out there. I mentioned the Enneagram, the personality type system, the Enneagram. My girlfriend and I actually teach workshops on that, and I write articles about that and essays. And then, you know, I'm searching for work elsewhere in terms of, like, what festival can I go to or what contacts can I cultivate? So a lot of things like that, a lot of just nuts and bolts. And then now I'm working on a show, and I'm probably going to have to get going pretty soon, uh, based on the blog Post Secret. So I'm directing and I've co-written that. And there's a lot of business meetings that are involved in that because that's a show that has the potential to go a long, long way. So there's a lot of just behind-the-scenes stuff. The stuff that nobody imagines when they grow up saying, I want to be a writer. Of course, yeah, yeah. Nobody thinks about, everybody sees the sitting at the typewriter or the performing and they never see the, the admin, all of the admin work that goes on. Yeah, they don't see you sorting your receipts or <laughs> trying to purge your clogged inbox. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I know that you have to get going and I, I, I want to thank you for, for taking some time out of your day to, to talk to me today. You're um, welcome. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you.